Okay, thank you for joining the Pep Talks podcast. My name is Mara Smith. I am the CMO of Pepper Jam. And I'm Chrissy Kammerer, and I'm the content strategist with Pepper Jam. Today, we're so excited to have uh, guest Daniela Yakubovsky, co-founder of Bobble Bar. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Bobble Bar is a fast fashion direct-to-consumer brand that offers chic and fashionable jewelry at guilt-free prices. They have this fashion philosophy that it's best to invest in the essentials and play with trends. Daniela, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so happy to have you here on our podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. I'm personally very excited to have you on our podcast, Daniela, because I'm an avid fan, uh, fan of the Bobble Bar brand. Usually Bobble Bar is a staple in my uh, Christmas gift purchases. Mm -hmm. So How I'm awesome. really, really, <laughs> absolutely. I'm really excited just to hear more about the Bobble Bar story and how you guys got started. Yes. And I actually had heard that it started out as a class project. Is that true? Is there any truth in that? Yeah, sort of. So um, my co-founder, Amy, and I actually have known each other for a little over a decade. We uh, initially met in our first jobs out of college. We were investment bankers. Um, and then we ended up going to the same business school, uh, same grad school. And we had the idea for Bobble Bar the summer between our first and second year at school. So we thought it was something uh, that was really interesting. And we were excited to kind of sink our teeth into it. So we we're fortunately, since we were in school at the time, we were able to spend our second year at business school, um, you know, really researching, diligencing and starting to flesh out uh, the beginnings of the plan that ultimately uh, became Bobble Bar. Um, so it was um, basically we they have something called a field study where you can outline a, a project uh, that you really want to tackle for school credit. Um, and they really encourage people to participate in field studies because obviously there's nothing like real world application and experience. Right. Um, so we basically figured out how to turn starting Bobble Bar into as many field studies for credit as humanly possible um, and really spent as much of our second year working working on that plan. Wow. So did you end up getting credit for the project? We did. We, I mean, we graduated. They can't take it away from us now. <laughs> That's a win. I think, I think we're, yeah. So the way field studies are usually set up is at the start um, of the year, you basically outline um, what the project is meant to look like. You know, you, you identify a professor who will work with you on the project and you outline what the purpose of the project is, um, what you hope to learn or prove or um, research and discover and then you have a presentation um, at the end of the semester to, to basically present out your learnings or findings. So as long as you're, you know, upfront around the scope of the work and, and what you intend to work on, it's a really great way if you're a grad student to essentially turn, you know, what could be your future career, what could be a topic that you want to focus on after school into something that you can do in real time for, for school credit. That's really cool. Did anyone else in your class go on to do what they were doing professionally? Yeah, I think lots of people try to find ways to participate in field studies um, and have it be a part of your going forward career. Sometimes that's not necessarily um, something as entrepreneurial as ours. I know that there were definitely classmates of mine who, 
had an interest in a particular company or joining a particular company mm -hmm. and reached out and offered to tackle a project or concept um, that they would find interesting or helpful as part of a field study. And you can use that sometimes to just sort of get an in and, and have an opportunity to work for a company that you admire or would want to potentially work for full time. So it, what's nice is there's a lot of flexibility there. And I think um, as a, you know, as a student, it gives you a lot of room to sort of play. I think especially because it's something um, that you're doing in grad school, they really want you to think long and hard about what are some of those um, real life experiences that could really, um, you know, give you a lot to experiment with that would dovetail nicely into where you see your career going? Yeah. It's like you're practicing what you're doing in real time. Exactly. Exactly. I love that. Where did the name Bobble Bar come from exactly? Bobble, I, I could figure that out, but the bar part. <laughs> yeah. So we spent actually a lot of time thinking about um, what we wanted to name the company. I think that there were a, a couple of, um, you know, a couple of things that we really wanted to accomplish. We wanted to, you know, when we started, um, we were selling fashion jewelry um, and we were not selling fine jewelry. Mm -hmm. So we really wanted to use a word that would quickly communicate that the product that we were selling was intended to be um, trend focused, fun. Um, and like a really fun accessory. We didn't want to use anything that could be misconstrued as, you know, oh, they're selling engagement rings, um, you know, because right. that's so far from from what we do. So what we loved about the word bobble is it it communicates just that. It communicates that it's an accessory for fun. Um, it's meant to be fashion forward. It's an extra. It's a trinket. Um, but it also didn't tie us necessarily to jewelry alone. You know, bobble could really be applied to a wide range of different types of accessories. And again, it's really about that, you know, that little extra or that flourish. Um, so it gave us a lot of kind of room to grow and experiment, which we loved. And then we also wanted a word that would communicate that we had a wide range of product. Um, at the time, lots of people were doing things like denim bars and t-shirt bars and, and kind of using the word bar um, because it certainly had broad application in a retail environment where people were physically laying out, a, you know, a buffet of options across a bar. Right. Um, but we really loved it because we felt like it communicated that variety and range. Um, but it sounded really nice next to the word bobble. I think we also always loved alliteration. Oh, and I think run. as a brand, totally. um, we have a real sense of humor. So it kind of dances off the tongue a little bit. And it's a really fun, um, optimistic kind of phrase. And, and we felt like that was in line with the brand that we wanted to build. I agree. It makes me want to get dressed up and go somewhere <laughs> fun. So home run. That's there. a good sign. <laughs> good, good, good. So, so that's really interesting. So this starts out as a class project. You obtain credit for building a business plan, essentially for you know the business that is you know so successful that you operate today. But uh, going back in time, when you left school, what was the next step? What happened after you finalized the plan? After you did the class project, what were the next steps that you took? So I think um, after that, you know, we really wanted to start proving out some of our theses in a real world example um, and to really start testing and learning and, and seeing if what we had thought would be right was actually right. Um, so we actually, Amy and I each invested um, a little bit of money to stand up a beta website and we graduated school 
um, in the summer of 2010. And we stood up like a little tester website under a totally different name um, just to start trying and seeing and gauging people's responses to how we thought that they would want to shop for the category. Um, so we got that up. We ran that for a couple of months. Um, and I think as soon as we started to see some of the data come in, we saw that there was a, a strong appetite for what we were doing. And I think we recognized that that some of our hypotheses were, were wrong and needed to be tweaked in terms of shopping experience and user experience. And I think that's par for the course in any company that you're starting. Um, but it definitely proved out that the core hypothesis behind starting the company um, you know, really played out the way that we we thought it would. Um, and we were really excited and enthusiastic to, to kind of launch it in earnest. So we took our findings from our data site. We went out and raised um, a small round of venture capital financing. Um, and then in uh, January 2011, we formally launched Bobble Bar. That's wow. great. That's a great story. Did you have, did either you or Amy have another full-time job during this transitional period? Were you doing anything else? Or were you thinking about what could potentially be plan B if this so, doesn't go like we So ironically to? enough, we actually had full-time jobs lined up. <laughs> so we had graduated in summer 2010. We had both had full-time jobs lined up. And we thought, you know what? We spent all of our second year at school kind of researching and studying this and building this out. Like we owe it to ourselves to launch it and kind of see. Mm -hmm. And then we were you know, really excited and enthused by the response that we saw. And we really did have this very long uh, debate with one another, kind of hemming and hawing over what we should do. You know, should we pursue this and start this company? Should we take our full-time jobs? Um, and it's funny because we, you know, we, we reminisce now and we talk about how at the time that felt like a really difficult, scary decision, um, you know, because we were potentially leaving um, behind secure jobs with a paycheck that we knew we would degrade in um, to start something that was totally and completely uncertain. And even though we obviously had some data and information to help inform that decision, it obviously is not as robust as, you know, knowing with certainty that the company would work out, that it would still exist in a year or two years or five years. Um, so at the time, it felt like this really big decision. And looking back on it now, we we sometimes you know, joke that, um, you know, looking back, it, it should have been a very, it should have been a much easier decision. Um, and I think that it's easy to feel overwhelmed with um, all the scary parts of, of starting something new, which it certainly sure. can be very scary and overwhelming. Um, but having now gone down that path, I think we recognize um, that the excitement and promise of being able to start something new, um, you know, should outweigh that. Were one of you a hundred percent on board the whole time, and one of you were devil's advocate that whole time? Or Not was necessarily. It I think that I think that we both try to be, um, in general, very measured, and I think we both do a good job of really trying to lay out all the pros and cons. I think what's really tough about a decision like that is is that the biggest, you know, the biggest reason you would choose not to pursue the something new um, is the uncertainty of it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that there is anything in the world that's going to get you comfortable with with that uncertainty. There's no way to to prove it out other than to launch it and do it and, and go down that path. So, um, you know, I think that's where it can be a, a really 
interesting conversation because you're you're never going to have 100% certainty. And I think the question is really an internal one, um, which is, you know, are you excited enough about the opportunity and the idea? Are you passionate enough about what it is that you want to start that ultimately that outweighs um, the fear and concern that it, it won't work out? I think for us also, the other big piece is, you know, this was our first entrepreneurial venture. And I think that our concern is one that many people, when they're starting something from scratch, have, which is, oh my God, if it, you know, if it doesn't work out, if it fails, what am I going to do with myself? Like, what, right. what am I going to do for a job? My career's over. Um, you know, and I think having now uh, been at it for, for quite a few years, I think what we realized is that, um, you know, the failures that we experienced in the role have prepared us more and better for anything that any future role could potentially throw at us versus the the wins and successes. Um, you know, the failures are teaching moments and learning moments. And I think that we've just become um, much better at everything we do by, you know, occasionally having a stumble and learning from it and then applying that to what you do going forward. Um, so I, I think that that really positive things come from not always getting it right. Um, and we always say mm -hmm. that we think that we are infinitely more hireable today than we we were before we had the experience of of starting something from scratch. I like that. Infinitely more hireable. It's great. Absolutely. Uh, so I think by my next question now is, do, was there a defining moment when you and Amy looked at each other and you knew that this was it? You succeeded. You've arrived. We have something magical here and it's going to be just next level all in. Was there a moment that that happened where you looked at each other and just smiled? You know, it's funny. That moment I don't think ever happened. And I, I question if that happens for people because I don't know that there is a defining moment. And I also think that as entrepreneurs, we probably do a better job than anyone else about beating ourselves up and always striving to do better and be better and achieve more. Um, so I don't know that there was ever a moment where we were like, we've done it. Um, but I do think that we we hit a moment that I think was more seminal where we recognized, you know what, we are, you know, we're always striving to do better and be better and do more. And we really don't do a good enough job reminding ourselves of where we've been and what we've accomplished. And something mm -hmm. we, you know, realized kind of early on and really tried to actively promote with the team is that it's so important to celebrate the wins. Celebrating mm -hmm. the wins is really, really critical. I don't know that there's ever a win where you sit back and it's like, we're good, you know, because I think we all want to <laughs> keep pushing ourselves. Um, but I do right. think it's really important to take a pause in a moment and be like, that was a big win and a really incredible moment. And we should take a minute to pat ourselves on the back and feel really proud of that moment. And now we can keep pushing and moving forward and, and doing more and doing better. So, you know, I think it's a lot of little moments. And I think that we all collectively have to remind ourselves to pause and breathe and recognize and appreciate them. I agree. I agree. And I think that's so important for, especially for other females to hear from someone who's achieved so much success. Um, just to hear, you know, that it's important to take that time and celebrate the wins and reflect on what yeah. you've accomplished. So 
one of the hot topics these days is this uh, feeling of imposter syndrome, particularly with females. And so what I wanted to hear from you, uh, Daniela, is do you ever suffer from the feeling of uh, imposter syndrome? And if so, what do you do to overcome that and, and push, push through that barrier? So I think it's a really interesting topic because I, you know, I think it's one that is is so universal because it ultimately comes down to um, constantly comparing yourselves to others and really thinking that somebody else's barometer for success or what they put out into the world as you know how things are going for them should be your measure of success. Um, you know, we used to actually have, I remember a, a poster up in our office a couple of years ago that just said comparison will kill you. And I, I think that that is just such an accurate and spot on phrase. Um, we can't sit and compare ourselves to others. I think that we have to, you know, cultivate in ourselves the self-confidence and self-awareness to set our own goals um, and our own metrics for ourselves. And you have to measure yourself against that. Um, which truthfully, I think, takes time and um, a tremendous amount of work. And to some degree, I think just takes experience and, and maturity. Um, I know for me personally, I've spent a lot of time focusing on activities that help me calm down my mind a little bit, um, whether that's doing a small meditation in the morning, going to an acupuncturist, um, going to a, a sensory deprivation float tank, which I'm a really big fan of, um, but really cultivating those activities that allow you to slow down and, and be alone with your thoughts and really um, strive to have clarity in terms of where you think you should be without looking at where somebody else is. Um, and I think especially in today's world with the rise of, of social media and with the increase of you know, seemingly available information about how other people are doing, it's really easy to fall into that trap of saying, oh, that it looks like that person is just killing it. Um, but I think that that is a really tough spot to keep putting yourself in. Yeah. Everybody lives their best lives on yeah. social. Oh, for so. sure. Well, it sounds like you take a lot of proactive measures to help gain clarity for yourself and avoid falling into that trap of self-doubt or having that sense of imposter syndrome. But did you, in founding Bobble Bar, did you ever reach a moment where you thought, I want to throw in the towel? I mean, a million. Um, you know, I think you don't get to a place of feeling comfortable and confident with where you are and feeling good about yourself. I think it's really hard to get to that place until you've really experienced some disappointment and have recognized that the, you know, that beating yourself up isn't, isn't the way, um, you know, right. I think what's, what probably took us, or I can speak for me personally, what took me the, the longest amount of time, I think, to really acclimate to and to understand is that running a startup, um, I think what, one of the things that makes it the hardest is the roller coaster of emotion that you consistently feel day to day. Um, and recognizing that you would have within one single day, you could go from feeling the highest high to feeling the lowest low, because ultimately everything, you know, rolls to you. And it's, right. it's not uncommon that you would get amazing news one hour and then the next hour get really horrible, terrible news. And I think learning right. how to, um, kind of get yourself through that emotional roller coaster and learning how to 
take a more even response to everything takes like some real experience and conditioning. Um, and that was, you know, the hardest. And I think that especially in the early days, you know, when you, when you're experiencing some of those lows, it's really easy to feel like, Oh, I don't know that I can do this anymore. Um, but you know, then on the flip side, you, it's pretty easy to turn around and have an unbelievable high that kind of reminds you why you're there and why you're doing it. And, you know, for us, I think, especially in the early days when we had challenges, um, you know, interacting with customers in our community and hearing the responses that people had to what we were doing was a really positive, uplifting reminder um, that really helped us, you know, stay stay on track and reminded us why we why we were there in the first place. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I, I imagine it a little bit like Sisyphus's stone. And there's which one thing that you have to keep stumbling over every single time. Same challenge, overcome it over and over and over again. So that makes a lot of sense because then when you have that high or you feel that that success, for instance, it makes that so much worth it. And it sort of just propels you to keep moving forward. So I think it's a great answer. Thanks. So, so speaking of the early days, um, when you, so back to the timeline of when you were founding Bobble Bar and getting the business off the ground, I'm interested to hear, you know, about the first steps that you took to drive awareness and mm -hmm. really reach customers with scale. Can you talk about, you know, um, what steps you took to really get the Bobble Bar name out? Yeah, how do I market. become a household name, right? Yeah. So, you know, when we were first starting, and, and this is 2011, so very, you know, very different times than today, um, you know, we knew a couple of things. One is we knew that we had a great product, and we knew that we had a product that, that met a clear consumer need. Um, and we knew that we didn't have massive budgets to compete with, you know, big, massive uh, consumer brands of the world. We were definitely, in the early days, not going to be putting up television ads and plastering billboards with Bobble Bar. Um, but we felt really confident that what we did have was we really understood who our uh, customer was and, and who our community was made up of, uh, and that we knew how to reach them in terms of being uh, clever and coming up with things that would feel unique and different and would cut through the clutter of the marketplace. So at the time, you know, people weren't really using Instagram. Uh, Facebook was really the big thing. And Facebook ads were not nearly as ubiquitous as, as they are today. Mm -hmm. So for us, it was really about standing up content that was interesting, that would get shared, that people thought was clever or funny, or again, just, just sort of disruptive versus what they were seeing in their feed. You know, so that I think was, was one thing we really did. Um, a second thing we did is we recognized that we were starting to see more and more um, bloggers uh, coming up in the world in terms of influencing purchase. Um, and I think doing a, a really fantastic job, you know, essentially advertising the product for us because they, you know, liked the product and they would style it. And what is a better mm -hmm. advertisement than someone who's doing a fantastic job styling your product? Um, so one of our uh, earlier hires, one of our earliest hires actually was a blogger herself. And we had actually brought her on board to run our social media. Um, and she ended up just really um, giving out tons of product to a lot of her, you know, friends from the from the blogger community. And that was, you know, a huge opportunity for us in the early days to not only get our name out there, but I think more importantly to show people how they could be wearing and, and styling the product, which I think for us is, is something that's so critical. 
Um, but those were a couple of things that we did in the early days. And then the third I would add is, you know, really trying to come up with inventive partnerships, um, working with like-minded brands who spoke to a similar audience mm-hmm. um, and uh, where we had an opportunity to sort of piggyback off of one another's audiences um, and do something, again, clever and interesting and disruptive. Yeah. So I'm thinking too, do, when you're considering the, your customer and, and where they are and what they're looking for, do you have one source of truth when it comes to understanding their behaviors or their interests or their patterns? Do you, do you have anything that you subscribe to where you're saying this is, this works all the time or, or this is where they're at? I mean, how do you keep pace with those the changing needs. Yeah, you know, listen, I think we've been we've been working on uh, this company for too long to to think that anybody stays still for too long. I think for us, the one source mm-hmm. of truth is that um, you can't stand still for too long. And I think that the market is constantly evolving. And I think a lot of that um, is driven by a lot of changes in terms of how most of us are. Um, receiving and consuming information, content, and data, um, and what are the different channels that are driving our preferences and interests. And I think that that's just so constantly evolving. Um, Even if the channels themselves don't change, I think sometimes the way that we uh, interact with them or the way that, you know, our community is sort of relying on them, those are constantly changing. So I think for us, you know, the one key truth is just to make sure that we are constantly staying in constant contact with our community to better understand um, how they're getting information and and what's the best way for us to be reaching them. Um, And then, you know, I think the one thing that's really critical and key is we have to make sure that our product is just always fantastic. You know, if you have a great product and you have product that meets a clear need, um, then it's really just about finding the right medium to tell your story. Um, but we, we live and die by our product. Um, and I think that, you know, is the, the one constant. So how do you, um, you know, capture that feedback from, from your, uh, ideal customer and pull that back into the development of the product? You know, are you tapping into, you know, um, their exchanges on, on social media or, Um, How does that help inform your product development? Yeah, so everything that we do is incredibly data-driven. And we are very lucky that we have access to a lot of information about how our product is selling across a variety of mediums. Um, We have our core Bobble Bar product, which is sold on BobbleBar.com, but is also sold through a wide variety of wholesale retail partners. So you can find Bobble Bar at Nordstrom, Bloomingdale's on Shopbop, and and that's just to name a few. Um, but I think that our, um, you know, our the fact that we have a robust distribution strategy really gives us access to more and more information around how the community is responding to our product in real time. Um, and then it's you know up to the team to really funnel that information back. Um, and we all stay in close contact, and we do everything from you know, data measurement that's at scale, where we're really looking at just pure numbers of what's moving, what people are searching for, um, all the way down to, I would say, um, you know, more hands-on qualitative feedback, where we're constantly surveying, uh, doing calls and interviews, and passing back that information through either our marketing team or our customer service team back to the right relevant folks within the organization. 
Now you have done a lot of brand um, collaborations and how, how do they come about typically? Is it something where Bobble Bar thinks like this could really work, this would be a great partnership and then goes after it? Is it now at the stage where, where you're being approached to do collaborations and how do you decide what these partnerships will, will look like essentially? Yeah, so we're really lucky to be at a point where it's a, it's a pretty healthy mix. Um, there are some where we will be, you know, sitting in the office and talking about brands that we love and we'll just say, oh, wouldn't it be so cool to do X, Y, and Z with this other brand? And then sometimes we're, we're fortunate to get inbound requests from really incredible teams who are having the same conversation about us. Um, you know, I think one of the things that's exciting is we have so many capabilities around product development and sourcing that it really gives us um, you know, a wide berth in terms of what we can do as a brand. Um, so that's something that that's really exciting to us. Whenever we consider any sort of, of partnership, you know, for us, I think it really comes down to uh, two core things, which is, um, you know, what are we looking to accomplish as a brand and what would our partner be looking to accomplish as a brand? And can we come up with an idea or concept that will make sure that both parties feel really excited and happy with the result. Um, and then the second and arguably most important would be, you know, is the idea that we came up with collectively, is it something that's going to be meaningfully different and exciting for our end communities? Um, and are they just going to feel blown away by what we put together? Um, so, you know, we really try to put together partnerships that feel differentiated in terms of the end product um, and allow us to say something a little bit different and and really play and have fun in a in a slightly different but, you know, complementary space to our core business. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I'm thinking now uh, about about product. Now I'm thinking about bubble bar products. And and I just am curious to know if, if you have a a flagship product or something that is your favorite or is, is close to your heart maybe that is evergreen. It's always available. It's clear winner, always works with every outfit, every situation. Do you have one of those, one of those pieces? Oh, good question. Um, you know, it's funny because we have parts of our assortment that are, um, you know, always changing. And then we do have parts of our assortment that sort of, um, you know, live for longer periods of time. Um, mm -hmm. You know, for me personally, I actually really love, we have a set of um, what we call our gold vermeil collection, which is all 18 karat mm -hmm. gold plated sterling. And they tend to be pieces that individually are, um, you know, more classic. Um, but the idea is that you kind of mix and match them to make something that feels a little bit different, a little bit more fun. So we have uh, a set of earrings called the Liza uh, Gold Huggy Set. It's a set of six different Huggy earrings, and it's a mix of clean gold, uh, clear crystal, and also rainbow rainbow crystal. Um, mm -hmm. And I personally really love just like a strong layered earring look. I think that you can build a little bit of a statement without necessarily wearing larger sized earrings. So I particularly love and have for a long time that set because I think you can really mix and match depending on what works with your mood or your outfit. And then you throw on an ear cuff and you're good. It's a good foundational piece. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think Bobble Bar does that really well. You make it easy to make different products unique to your style. 
So it always could look different. And it's always a good way to feel good about yourself. Cause like, Hey, I put that together. Yeah. You <laughs> start these three different pieces. And now I, I, this is my own little statement piece. Totally. And I think one of the things um, that I love about Bobble Bar is the personalization element, right? So that's yep. key, um, especially in resonating with millennials. So I was just curious, how do you, uh, how does Bobble Bar um, determine, you know, how you can personalize products and, and bring that into the product development process? How do you decide what ultimately becomes uh, game for personalization. Yeah. So I think that, you know, personalization is a, a huge part of what we do as a brand. And we really like to, to think about it within the context of personal style and really exploring how you express yourself through, you know, what it is that you choose to wear every single day. Uh, for that reason, we actually love accessories as a category because I think it really allows you to put your own personal spin on any single thing that's in your wardrobe. You know, if you took three people and put them all in the same outfit, white t-shirt and jeans, the way that they choose to accessorize that outfit can really skew it in a very specific direction. Um, we're always thinking about providing room for personalization, whether it's bundles of products or things like the Huggy set that I mentioned that you can kind of mm -hmm. mix and match in, in a lot of different directions um, and are always thinking about how you can take different pieces and put them together in a clever way and helping our community um, better understand all of the different ways that they can do that. And then we also do have a lot of products on the site uh, that you can personalize in a wide variety of ways. Um, so we certainly have things like our custom phone cases and nameplates and monograms where you can personalize with a favorite name, phrase, number, you know, you name it. Um, and then we also, for a lot of our key styles, we really try to give a lot of variety in color um, because we found that color is oftentimes mm -hmm. a strong way that a lot of people would like to personalize the product that they're that they're choosing to to wear. So we oftentimes, especially for key products and, and items that we really believe in, um, will offer a variety of, of different colors. I would have to subscribe to that the color aspect of things. I think that's the great, and I know, you know, the Coco Chanel quote about looking in the mirror before you go out and take one thing off. But what about your personal style? Do you subscribe or is your philosophy more is better, less is more? Are you more subdued or do you like to be yeah. you know, on trend? I think truthfully, it really changes <laughs> constantly. Okay. And, and that's the thing I love most about accessories is I feel like for me personally, I'm definitely the type of person who could be planning to go to a party and maybe wearing a sequin covered dress that's already got a lot going on. And I probably wouldn't be one to throw in tons of jewelry with that. Um, but you still want those little finishing touches. You know, you still want a little stud earring or some rings or just something to add to it. Um, but mm -hmm. I can also just as easily be that person who you know, I know for me, a, a classic t-shirt and a great pair of jeans is very much like a daily uniform for me. Um, right. So I love the fact that I can kind of wear that day in and day out, but really quickly change the tenor of that outfit based on a couple of key accessory changes. So again, I can pair that with, you know, sneakers and a whole bunch of layering necklaces, and that can go in one direction. Or I compare that with a high heel and maybe a big colorful pair of statement earrings and the same outfit feels quite different. Um, so I definitely have a wide ranging style, but 
you know, I also work here. So I feel like right. <laughs> so much. That's fair. Um, and I feel like everyone here definitely has a lot of fun with their accessories as a result. I think I'd be dripping in jewelry. Yeah. <laughs> if I work there. I couldn't resist it. How could you? All right. That's great. All that information is really great. So Daniela, I would be remiss if we didn't ask you a question about affiliate marketing. Sure. So you, Bobble Bar has been a client of Pepper Jams for several years. So I would just love to hear from, from you. What do you find most powerful about affiliate marketing as a channel? Yeah. So I think affiliate marketing is a really interesting and exciting channel because it's really about letting other people tell your story for you. Um, you know, I think right. all of the major channels, you know, have a very clear place in a, a smart, integrated marketing strategy. Um, but one of the things that's really nice about affiliate um, is once you find the right affiliates that are really um, a good fit for, for your brand and your product and your community, you're really relying on them to, to tell the story for you. And I think that there is an element of third party validation there that's hugely helpful. I also think with the right affiliates, um, you know, for us at least, you know, we tend to work mostly with sites that, um, you know, really aim to um, give their honest and genuine opinions about a product or a service to their audience because, you know, they've built strong audiences that really value that honesty. Um, and those are the types of affiliates that we tend to work more closely with. Because again, we really stand behind our product. And I think for us, it's really fun and exciting to hear, um, you know, some of those affiliates kind of talk about their experiences uh, with Bobble Bar and, and sharing that with their audience. Brand advocates. Yeah, the brand advocates. And I think authenticity is definitely Absolutely. key there. Absolutely. I think authenticity, I would say, is really the key um, to, to really making the channel work extremely hard for you because they're, you know, you can't buy authenticity. Um, so I think because that content is being developed and delivered by a completely third party, um, you know, that does come with an air of authenticity that we couldn't, for example, have, you know, or would be very hard for us to replicate on like, you know, our paid Facebook ads. It's just, it's not the same. Well, and it also requires a certain level of trust in right. uh, these affiliates who are advertising the brand that you've built and cultivated. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. You have to share your ideals and share your vision mutually. Mm -hmm. Daniela, thank you so much for joining us on Pepper Jam's podcast, Pep Talks. We really appreciate the time and uh, look forward to hearing from you again. Yeah. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much. We just spoke with Daniela Yakubovsky, co-founder of Bobble Bar, about the important role brand advocates, influencers, and incentive partnerships play to a brand success within the affiliate space. You can check out the full podcast plus many more by visiting us at pepperjam.com slash podcasts.